And welcome to episode 92 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Sleepy Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers. That means we love looking up at the nighttime sky, and this podcast is for everybody else who likes going out under the stars. Happy Valentine's Day, Shane. It's Valentine's Day here when we record this. Yeah, back, back, right back at you, pal. <laughs> and uh, the Valentine's, uh, what is it, a gnome or something? Cupid? Anyway. Cupid, gonna, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hopefully it will bring us some some warmer weather. Um, we were at minus forty one Celsius or colder for one week. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, Jess and I were talking last night after supper, and she said that we set a record for most consecutive hours at minus forty or colder. It was yeah. like uh, oh, I can't remember, like one hundred and twelve or one hundred and twenty hours, something like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I had a window break in my house last night, so uh, that was really interesting. What? Um, yeah. Yeah, at uh, at about one a.m. Yeah, it was like somebody uh, uh, put a gun off in in the house. We we actually have windows on order because several several of the windows have broken, and it's just the seal that breaks. Oh. And uh, and then wow. last night, yeah, at around one a.m., uh, the I think uh, the last one in our in our upstairs uh, that hadn't broken yet uh, broke. We're actually looking; we could see a neighbor's had done it, and uh, you could actually see like all this frost around their window. Rebecca said. Uh, Hey, do you think ours is is like that? I'm like, no, I don't think I never heard that one break. So I think it's okay. Then like today, I'm like, yeah, that one broke. <laughs> like it's incredibly loud. Like it's it's almost like a rifle going off. It is it's that loud. So uh, so that wow. happened at one a.m. <laughs> so we so that woke us up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would do it. So and my and then I came. So I I went back to sleep for an hour or so, and I got up and I looked around and like it's not like shattered or anything like that, but the seal breaks. Um, and you know, probably this happens in houses, but when it's minus 40 and it's minus 40 here without the windshield right now, um, yeah, I think like the pressure difference and something causes it to be extremely loud, but uh, yeah, this happened a few times before, uh, my weather station froze. So it was freezing because it was flashing, flashing Mm -hmm. all these cold, cold temperatures. And then it gets stuck at minus 25. And then when I got up this morning, uh, no more weather stations. So I'll be looking for a new weather station now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it it's cold in a lot of places across Canada, but uh, I also saw Texas is, um, I don't know if they're under a state of emergency or some sort of declaration, but uh, they're having like extreme cold down there, like negative seven Fahrenheit, which wow. that's quite cold. Um, even like for here, that's cold. <laughs> Never mind Texas. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Will, who's, uh, who does the sound intro for the show and, and the extra, uh, his boyfriend's in Kansas and, uh, he was down there, uh, recently visiting actually, and said that it was like super cold down there. Like same thing, like into the minus teens, what we would call here. So. Oh, yeah. Cold in, in a lot of places. Um, I guess the good news for us is we should be coming out of it this week. I think like by Thursday, we're like minus six Celsius, which is uh, quite nice. Yeah. I, I mean, and I'll tell you, like it kind of, I kind of felt better after yesterday because yesterday the wind finally stopped. Cause I was mm-hmm. thinking, you know, like you and I used to go observing like this um, back when we've had similar conditions uh, before, but you couldn't do that this time. But then, then last night, I think we probably could have gone observing, but whereas yep. we've had so much wind, cold, um, our hospital is also near full capacity. So if you do end up getting frostbite or frost nip, it's, it would be 
not great to be wandering in there. And they're like, what the hell were you doing out all night in a pandemic? Like, and now we have to treat you in amongst all these sick people. Like maybe that wasn't a great idea, you know? So I'm like, kind of have all these things in my head, but probably if we weren't under a pandemic might've, I, I would have gone out observing um, mm-hmm. because it was, it was chilling. It was uh, the wind was calming down. I was going to say the wind was chilling down, but uh, that sort of is counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might go out tonight in the backyard. The wind yeah. is supposed to be somewhat light out of the west, so my house will provide a nice windbreak and uh, take a look at a few doubles or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It really makes me want to look at getting uh, like a like a permanent site with uh, an area to warm up uh, and that sort of thing. But I see you you attended uh, the local club meeting. Yeah. So once a month, the local club has a they call it a meeting, but really it's a presentation. And it's open to the public as well as, of course, all members. And for forever and a day, uh, the meeting was always at the local science center. Mm -hmm. Um, Since the pandemic, like, you know, so many other things, it's gone virtual. And, you know, I think it's been really good for the club, actually, because um, our province is quite sparsely populated. You know, we have a couple cities where the majority of the population is, but then there's a lot of rural uh, dispersion of people. And um, the, the membership of the Regina Club is largely Regina people, but there are quite a few members outside of the city that never uh, really have a, a good opportunity to participate yeah. in the monthly presentations because it's, you know, a two hour drive just one way or something like that. Yeah. Um, so in the past, you know, a real, real good turnout to a meeting would be like 20 plus people um, and probably averaging in the, you know, 10 to 15 range uh, yeah. most nights. However, since they've gone virtual with Zoom, I think there are like 50 to 60 people are, are on the meeting or presentation like every time. And uh, that's awesome. You know, and, and I got to say, I kind of like it too, especially this time of the year. Um, yeah. Like it's only a 20 minute drive for me to, you know, get to the science center. But when it's minus a thousand outside, I prefer to just stay at home and have a beer while I watch a presentation. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's been quite nice. I, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is but, good. But yeah, um, it was an interesting presentation. Uh, one of the local members, he made a 16-inch daub, and it's a fast one. I can't remember what the focal ratio is. I want to say it's like an F4 or maybe an F4.5, something like that. Is this Ron's? Yeah. Yeah, he, he built that a while back, didn't he? It has a mead, he, has a mead mirror in it, doesn't it? I, I don't know a lot of the those details, but I think it's all aluminum. Like, there's no wood on it. Um, yeah. He, he built it out of metal, so the ultra lightweight. Um, very, very, um, easy to move and transport. Um, but Ron is a very like kind of creative, uh, tinkerer type of person and he loves just doing things in the garage and, um, his new project, which is what he presented on was building, a uh, like an automated do system for his, his 16 inch dog. And, um, yeah, it's really cool. So he has, um, two sensors that use infrared to detect uh, the temperature of the secondary as well as the primary. Mm. Um, And then it feeds into this Raspberry Pi board that he made. And um, he talked about keeping the optimum temperature of your mirror is two degrees below ambient. I think. Oh, really? No, two two degrees above the dew point or something. Oh, okay. That That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Two degrees above little bit of heat coming off there to keep the moisture from accumulating yeah yeah yeah. so so this thing is constantly i think every half a second or something like that 
It takes a temperature reading off of the infrared sensor. Uh, and it also is, you know, has a sensor for the external ambient air. And then it just constantly regulates the power uh, to keep those mirrors at that two degree level. And uh, it was really neat to see and really neat and just seeing his steps, you know, along the way to figure out all of this stuff. Um, Cause originally he started with a bunch of resistors um, uh, all over the primary mirror. And it was like inconsistent heating and, and too hot. Um, he, he also talked a little bit too. He's like, I could never really understand why on a daub, like the, um, the secondary mirror would often do up before the primary mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, extrapolated that it was really just the ground heat radiating up, hitting yep. the, the primary and kind of collecting in the mirror box. Huh. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was a super cool presentation. Uh, I don't have any of the details. Like I'm not going to post or not able to post what, you know, all of his parts and what he did. Mm. Um, but I thought I'd share it because it's kind of neat, you know, and that's, yeah. Sometimes that's the value of the local clubs as you get into some interesting presentations like this. And, uh, you know, it's kind of fun. Now, I think he also said that I believe it cost him $400 to do this. So it's probably the world's most expensive dew heater as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but sounds like it. But, you know, it's if you like projects and you like building, uh, why not? You know, have fun. And, and then, you you know, you make it exactly for what you want it to be for your setup, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's neat. Um, yeah, I remember he built that a number of years ago and we were doing stuff at, at the science center, Ron and I, uh, just as part of their creative whatevers. And he, he, I was, he was there during the busy times. He actually is a creative person and I'm not as creative. And he, uh, he had it set up and was kind of, you know, as, as like groups were going through and then they kind of just had like regular public hours. And I was kind of sitting there by myself during regular public hours in case anybody was interested in astronomy or whatever. Um, and had like literally 10 people walk up to me over the course of two days. So, but I remember I, I spent a lot of time with that telescope and, uh, but I've never looked through it. I, I don't think he's, does he observe much through it or? Um, I don't know, actually. That's a good question. I got the sense that he does some backyard observing with it. Um, yeah. But he, he's a regular attendee of the, uh, the Saskatchewan summer star party. Uh, yeah. I think he's taken out there. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know if he does a lot of camping or, or what he does, uh, the rest of the, the summer, but yeah, it sees a little bit of use. Yeah. 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 I always kind of had wanted to look through it, but then, uh, never, never saw it at any of the events, but yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. So tell us about your, uh, new eyepieces. Yeah. So, um, a while back I mentioned, I, I may be interested in a bino viewer. So oh, yeah. a bino, you know, a bino viewer just for you know, make sure everybody's aware of what that is. You put that into like the diagonal or the focuser of a Newtonian. And, um, basically what it does is it kind of transforms your telescope into like a a binocular like experience. Um, so the bino viewer goes into the telescope and then it has, uh, eyepiece holders for two eyepieces. And you know, the rest is exactly pretty much like a binocular. Mm -hmm. Um, the downside to these things is you need two of every eyepiece. So, um, when I mentioned I was thinking about a bino viewer, I said it has to start with the eyepieces. I, you know, if I can get the eyepieces that I want doubled up, um, I may consider it. So one of the eyepieces, like, and then second part to this is um, I used to bino view briefly. Oh, geez, a few years ago. 
and I did it with uh, 24 millimeter Teleview Panoptics. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a nice field, but I was kind of disappointed with some of the light loss, um, which is inherent in bino viewers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got rid of them. So that's the history. And then recently, as, as all listeners know, I've started to observe with um, like a lot of real simple glass eyepieces, you know, like mm-hmm. the TMB super monos and orthoscopics. And uh, I've really been impressed with the light transmission through these simple eyepieces. And it's kind of like reignited my interest in binocular viewers. Um, you know, I'm wondering if using a simpler eyepiece helps with that light transmission, which it should. Um, and then just the comfort of binocular viewing is, is really, really nice. So uh, a couple of the eyepieces that I wanted uh, to have in the collection for a bino viewer uh, was a 25 millimeter Takahashi uh, MC Ortho. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is a older eyepiece. It's a 965 inch barrel. Um, and then another one that I wanted was the Pentex SMC 18 millimeter uh, Ortho. Um, I've ha- I have uh, one of each of those, but I you know I needed the second one. And, um, I recently purchased the Pentex and, uh, it arrived and I'm quite happy with it. And I recently won an auction, uh, for a second Takahashi 25 millimeter ortho. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm excited, uh, to the, the 25 millimeter tack will probably take a little while to get here. Um, but it's, uh, it's setting up to look pretty good now for the acquisition of a bino viewer. <laughs> um, so I'm considering ordering one because I think, I think there will be some delay or lag, um, like just about everything in astronomy right now, mm-hmm. like equipment wise, if you want to buy it, you're probably looking at a delay because there's such a backlog of orders and, uh, the, the demand has gone up and the supply has kind of uh, slowed down because it's. Uh, been hard to acquire some of the materials due to the pandemic. Um, so anyway, I'm thinking about ordering um, the Bader Max Bright twos. I think are the front runner for me right now. But I, you know, I want to do a little more reading. Okay. Um, so speaking of reading, yeah, that's a good segue for something I was going to mention to you. I feel like you own this book, but maybe you don't. It's the telescope, telescopes, eyepieces, astrographs, design, analysis, and performance of modern optics by Smith, Sergioli, and uh, Richard Berry. Did you buy that book? No, no, I do not. I wish I had bought two copies <laughs> because no, I, I looked it it's up worth here. A I'm million like, dollars? <laughs> uh, not quite, but I see that it's now going for a cool four hundred and three dollars and seventy cents used. Oh, sorry, and what's so, the name of it? It's called Telescope Eyepieces and Astrographs, Design, Analysis, and Performance of Modern Astronomical Optics. So I own a copy of this book. I won't be buying another one. Um, so Wilman Bell, I think we mentioned this a long time ago, is a, uh, was uh, one of the big publishers of uh, telescope books uh, or mm-hmm. amateur astronomy mm-hmm. books. Uh, really great publisher. Unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, including the pandemic, they, they recently went under. Um, and so all these books are now out of print. <laughs> Fortunately, yep. I, bought, I bought probably 95% of the books that I thought I, I would want to get uh, from them. And so now the, the prices just continue to, uh, to skyrocket. I think this was about a 60 or $70 book. And it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like buying stocks, right? Like you buy it and then you're like, oh man, I just threw 
so much money away or whatever. And then, you know, you come back, this was 2012, you come back nine years later and you're like, holy cow, the book is, uh, you know, gone up uh, seven or eight times. Just like every stock that I buy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Sounds like (laughs) cryptocurrency. (laughs) Exactly. So, but anyway, I I have a copy of this and I was reading about the monocentric eyepieces in there. Um, I I was thinking about your monocentric eyepiece. I was looking up something else, but uh, I I started reading the the bit about monocentrics in there. And I was like, oh, Shane would enjoy this. I should see. I think he has this book. If not, maybe maybe I'll I'll find it used for like $30 or something and send him a copy. It was $403. I didn't Jeez, buy it for you, Gene. You'll, you'll be able to charge people. You'll, you can charge me just to read the excerpt from your book. <laughs> <laughs> I should be, I should be charging you now just for talking about it. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, Checks in the mail. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of unfortunate, but that's, uh, Man, that's you know, book. that it's so frustrating, uh, with astronomy books. And we've mentioned it many times. Like if you see a book that has, you know, if, if you have any level of interest in it, you know, and it's related to astronomy, uh, there's a good, you know, there's a good chance that at some point this thing will go out of print and become way more money than what it is now. So buy it. You know? And I always say I should, I should always buy two copies. And then mm-hmm. Rebecca's like looking at me like daggers, right? Cause she's switched over to eBooks cause we have so many damn books yeah. in this house. Right. And she's, yeah, she's a real yeah. academic. So the books, books just come in our mailbox. And, and because although I'm not like, I'm not really an academic at all, but I work with academics um, and I love books. They actually will bring me their books that they write or that they get and, you know, for whatever reason can't stack in their house anymore. So I have like books stacking up just, you know, on uh, cause I work in, in sort of uh, psychological experimentation and that's really interesting stuff to read. At least I find it interesting. So they bring me their books on psychological experimentation. And I understand like about 20% of what I'm reading, but uh, it's still pretty interesting stuff. Uh, you know, good, good to know what I'm, what I'm working with there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, I'll add this book to my, you know, dream bucket list, I guess, of, of books that I'll probably never own, but you never yeah, know, well, maybe come across a decent value. Well, probably the best thing to do, and I, I, I need to make you up your, uh, and here, here it is Valentine's Day, and I've missed it again, is, is your care package. Um, and, and maybe I'll put that, that book in it as, as well. Uh, maybe once we get into warmer weather and get it observing. Uh, mm-hmm. I kind of thought that would happen by now, but uh, I, was, I was looking, and I kind of had put some pencils and erasers aside for you. Um, and then I thought, well, I'll just give that to Shane next time I see him. It's been like six months. <laughs> it's been a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, and we're not alone in this. Um, no. The other people are in the same boat. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or toboggan, you know, in the winter. Oh, <laughs> that's, that must be, I never heard that before. That's like a Saskatchewanism, eh? Uh, no, it's a Shaneism. I think I oh, just made that up. Yeah. A schism. Yeah. yeah my, my <laughs> very poor attempt at humor. <laughs> You know, but people should know, you know, I, I moved to Saskatchewan and somebody invites me out to their, they call them cabins. We call them cottages where I'm from. Um, and we're driving out there and this, this is like a totally true story. We're driving along and it's like pretty desolate. And there's like, it's like this, this windswept road and there's snow everywhere. It looks like something, you know, it looks like we're driving through the Arctic and we get to this, um, it's really hard. I'm not, it's, I'm, I have trouble conceptualizing what this looks like, but it's like a crossroad, but it's not, it's like 
there's like the road that we're on and there's a stop sign just kind of very ad hoc like somebody went and made a stop sign it's not like anything from department of highways so we stop and just as we get there there's like uh it's really hard to describe what this is it's it looks like something out of the 50s and it's like this amphibious or not amphibious it's like this snowmobile type thing but it's like huge um it's almost like you you crossed a snowmobile with a bus and apparently that's what they were and they're still around here and they they used to truck the kids to school in them i heard Mm -hmm. i mean that's what somebody told me anyway after i described what i saw and it's kind of like uh almost looks like an armored personnel carrier slash snowmobile and it has like a ski in the front has like these tracks and it has like four or five portholes in the side of it and the thing is all (laughs) painted red you've seen these before too probably haven't you well, so way off track from, from astronomy, but very interesting nonetheless. Um, so the Western Development Museum in Moose Jaw, you know, which is a city adjacent to us, um, that museum's theme is transportation. And uh, they have a pile of those things in that museum, uh, yeah. different sizes and shapes and colors yeah. and, and little stories about them, how like these were somewhat common. I don't even know in what decade, 50s, maybe 40s, I'm not sure. But they're still uh, as, around. Yeah, yeah. And, and some people still use them. Um, I see them occasionally like on the lakes when I go ice fishing uh, in the wintertime. So, uh, yeah, they're still around. Um, a little less common now, but you will occasionally see them. Yeah. Anyway, where, where we were going was up by the lakes. And that's where, where people must have them. And they, they have their own, I want to say like side roads or something. They're not like it looked like a road, but. Like, I'm sure if you went there in the summer and we did, there's no road there. They're just like, it, it's just, that's where these things go. And, but you, they put up all these sort of temporary stop signs so that you don't collide. I mean, thankfully they did. Cause we literally stopped there, looked at each other. And then we see this thing coming and I'm like, what? Like, I'm so bewildered by what I'm looking at. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, that I'm just, I'm not going anywhere. And it goes right in front of us. And there's like people looking out these portholes and waving at us, right? Something almost like if Jules Verne had lived in the Arctic, this is what he would have written about, you know? (laughs) Anyway, we got some interesting observing Uh, reports. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Um, I'm fascinated this week with some observing reports. Um, So they're both centered around a very, you know, challenging object. Um, and you know, me being a double star lover, uh, this is on my list. Um, mm-hmm. and it's about observing, uh, so we all know Sirius, the star, the brightest star in the winter sky. Um, if not, we're going to ha- talk about it on the next episode. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Sirius is actually a double system. So there's Sirius A and Sirius B. Um, and Sirius B is a really hard observation to make because Sirius A is so bright um, and Sirius B isn't. And it often gets lost in the glare of Sirius A. Um, and for us northern observers, Sirius itself is kind of low in the sky, which makes it more challenging. Um, so needless to say, it's, it's a hard double to split. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this last week, two different listeners uh, recorded observations of it. So... Um, one is Eric, I think he's from Calgary, um, here in yep. Canada. He's a member of the just RASC. Outside. He's just, just outside. Just outside? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And on the national, uh, the national RASC observing email list, he circulated uh, a sketch of his Sirius B observation, uh, which was, well, first of all, he's a phenomenal sketcher and this, mm-hmm. this, you know, sketch was incredible. Um, 
and I think he observed Series B with a, a Celestron 14-inch uh, Cassegrain, if I'm not mistaken, at pretty mm-hmm. high magnification. Um, and then, like the next day, I think, or, or right around the same time frame, uh, another one of our listeners, uh, so Chris from Florida, uh, also not observed this, Series not B. Not this Chris. This Chris no. wishes he was in Florida. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't don't. Yeah, you and I both. Jeez, uh, that would be nice. Um, so anyway, why don't, uh, why don't I read Chris's yeah. observation report yeah, here? Cause it's a, it's a good report. So, um, it just starts off by saying I've been trying since November to have a successful ob- observation of Sirius B. Well, I recently came across a great article detailing specific steps as a guide. Um, he says in sky and telescope magazine, but it's, uh, that was a typo. It's a, it's at this earthsky.org website. I'll send out the link or we'll have it in the show notes. Um, Anyway, lo and behold, I actually saw it tonight for the first time. Uh, Before it got cloudy, the seeing and transparency were both very good. Uh, I had exciting views using my 10-inch F4.7 daub at 240 times and 327 times. Uh, But it was sharpest at 240 times with the Pentax 5mm XW in brackets. Thanks for hyping up this eyepiece. Uh, I've been enjoying it since Christmas. Uh, I think that's all on you. Chris, Chris of the North. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, uh, I think that eyepiece has been kind of on your wish list for a little while, although I think you're thinking of a Nikon now, but um, needless to say, I'll carry on. Uh, the companion star appeared to follow Sirius as it drifted westward across the field, which gave me a clue as to the orientation according to the chart I used. It was pretty much constantly visible uh, during the 40 minutes that I was viewing it due to the great sky conditions. The orientation of Sirius B is roughly east-northeast compared to Sirius. And the separation was about the same distance away from Sirius and the eyepiece as the size of the diffraction pattern of the bright star with a tight focus. That's tight. Um, Basically, it was partially in the star's glare. Call it about 10 arc seconds. Uh, Well, I'll tell you that that, or sorry, I'll start that again. Well, I'll tell you that's one off the bucket list. I'll definitely go after it again to see how low I can get the magnification and still be able to see it. It was a rewarding challenge uh, due to the very large disparity and brightness of this double star. It took three months, but the persistence was worth it. Uh, Give it a try sometime or revisit it if you've ever done it before. So Chris, have you seen Sirius B? I, I haven't. No, I, I haven't seen it. Have I tried? Yes. <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to see. This yeah, is a difficult, yeah. difficult observation. In fact, uh, we also have an article or I don't know if it's still up with the uh, uh, Clark Muir and Randall, uh, myself, uh, who, who worked together on a variety of projects. We, we put up a bit of a challenge a number of years ago on the, on the RASC uh, website somewhere um, as a bit of a historical challenge. Um, Anyway, more on that later. And we, uh, we, we subsequently have received some reports. So we put that up just as it became sort of visible in, in smaller telescopes like amateur telescopes here a few years ago. I think it's, it's getting to be at about its maximum distance. I haven't tried in a couple of years. And I, like that actually is one thing I thought about doing last night is, uh, is getting out and trying to uh, actually split that, you know, especially since reading uh, Chris of the South's um, great observation here. And then, then seeing Eric's, uh, just absolutely, uh, beautiful sketch, um, should, should ask Eric if we can tweet that out because that sketch is, uh, you know, it's funny. 
when, when you talk about double stars, like, and, and, and this is no offense to you, Shane, or anybody else, but, you know, when I hadn't observed as many of them and you kind of think you might be a bit underwhelmed because it's just two points of light, one usually brighter than the other. And then uh, when you see a sketch like Eric's, you go, yeah, that's what it's about. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His sketch was really, really good. Just draws um, you in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chris, Chris from the South and I had a couple more uh, emails shared. I mentioned that I'd like to try yep. it with my 120 millimeter refractor, but I wasn't sure if that was enough aperture. Oh yeah. That'll yeah. Yeah. And he said, uh, there's reports of, um, you know, hundred millimeters, uh, and up basically. So if you have a four inch telescope, yeah, um, I've got this one. is, yeah, yeah. You've got, uh, you know, you, you definitely have the aperture. Um, so give it a try. I'd be curious too, if anybody sees it with anything smaller, that would be pretty phenomenal. Uh, if that's even possible. So yeah, I think you never know until you try. Yeah. I think there's some theoretical that maybe like a three inch or so. So, but yeah, my, uh, I, yeah, that four inch, that's one of the, one of the things that I want to do with that is, is to, uh, is to give that, uh, that split a crack for sure. For sure. Yeah. Those are great observations. Yeah. Wonderful. And, uh, Certainly this week, um, I, I will observe and uh, attempting Series B will be high on the list. Yeah. Now that'll be some serious observing. Whoa. <laughs> so uh, speaking of uh, sort of the history committee and Series B, so Series B, do you know how it was discovered? No. So it was discovered uh, during testing of, uh, I think it was the 18-inch Dearborn refractor. Technically, I think it's like an 18.7 for those that are really going to hold me accountable to sizes. Um, and that was uh, an Alvin and Clark and Sons refractor. Uh, I forget the year, late 1800s. Um, anyhow, uh, but Clark, uh, my friend Clark, Clark first name, is going to do a presentation on Alvin, Clark and Sons. And uh, Clark's, uh, He's got an interesting perspective on everything. I observed a Clark for a number of years when I lived in Ontario and got to know him pretty well and uh, great observer and uh, equally good historian. It turned out, which I actually didn't know uh, as much about his historical bent at that time. And maybe he, he developed it a little bit more after I left, but uh, anyway, um, he, uh, he's going to do a talk called murder at the observatory. <laughs> oh, this sounds scary. <laughs> it's uh, it's about the Alvin and Clark and Sons uh, uh, telescope making. It's a telescope making murder mystery. <laughs> huh. and, and and for everybody listening, Alvin and Clark is a like old old telescope maker from like the eighteen hundreds uh, that made phenomenal telescopes for the time, and they're quite revered amongst uh, collectors these days. Yeah, um, person of interest for our listenership should be, should be um, Ken Houston Jones. And he's got a book called uh, Deep Sky Wonders. And uh, anyway, that's a great book. If people are interested, he used to observe with a five inch, oh, sorry, four inch Alvin and Clark. And then he also observed with uh, one of those, I forget who was asking about them, but the uh, Apogee uh, Moonwatch telescopes, you know, the five inch kind of five-ish inch half binoculars anyway he had yeah. one of those as well so oh yeah 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 those are those are uh, kind of a strange telescope yeah i'm not sure who, i can't recall who was who was asking about those but uh, somebody was was asking about them and i think i sent some 
some information. But anyway, uh, my friend Clark, he's going to do this this talk on the last name Clark and Sons, um, murder at the observatory, and that's going to be uh, maybe something we can tweet out here. In I think we're we're just settling on the dates now. I play a pretty minor role in these, but uh, Clark and Randall and I we we work on these kind of almost monthly presentations. So. Um, like you were saying, you go to the, uh, the local club meetings uh, every month, which, which I did for like about 20 years. <laughs> and then I kind of decided to, uh, to switch, switch focus, um, you know, sort of pun, in, pun intended for astronomical purposes, and uh, have, uh, have moved on to uh, kind of almost doing like a similar thing, but at uh, like a different... Uh, sort of a, a different way, like at a national level, because of the, uh, the pandemic restrictions, it, it actually allows us to, to do these uh, more international like presentations. So we get people who join us from, uh, it's easier all over North America because uh, people are, are in the right time zones, but anybody around the world can, can join in and they're free. It is, I think you need to register so you get the link, but uh, it, it's free to all as far as, as, far as we've uh, designed it anyway. So maybe we can send that out yeah, absolutely. Great opportunity for people to, to, you know, get some astronomical stuff uh, during colder weather or cloudy weather, just, just to enjoy. Yeah. Finished teaching my, uh, my first of two four-week classes this week, although the first one was five weeks. Um, so that was good. But now I have to look forward to, they wanted it on, they wanted the second set on Thursdays, which I was like, okay, that won't be so bad because... I, I usually teach uh, at the university. I, like I have a, a non-academic uh, teaching position and use, but I do teach a class for the, for our study. And so uh, usually I teach that. Well, I always teach that on, on Thursdays, although I get the odd Thursday off. And then uh, it's like, okay, that won't be so bad. Cause I'll have to do one. I think I'll have to do one presentation and then teach my astronomy class afterwards, but I can kind of suck one up and then, like due to scheduling and everything now I have to do all four. So I'm like, Oh dear. So I have to teach for like six hours straight. So, uh, so that, that, that's coming up. That'll be an interesting March. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, hopefully your brain's ready for it. Yeah. My brain is not in gear today. So my apologies for that. Uh, yeah. Continued working on the web project. I've actually, this been is cool. Checking. I like yeah, this. Yeah. What do you like about it? I just think it's, Cool, what you're doing. I think it's neat uh, that you're, you know, reviewing his work in this level of detail, and um, you know, even like that double star that you sent me. I forget the uh, the designation for it in uh, Cygnus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just think that kind of stuff is fun, like kind of historical archaeology, you know, through books and things like that. So. Yeah. So one of my one of my bents, Shane, you know this uh, well, is that. You know, the, the early observers, you know, um, like uh, T.W. Webb, uh, like Carolyn Herschel and different people like this. All right. Um, some of the stuff that they were they were sort of, quote unquote, discovering, they were were just a chance alignments or chance patterns of stars that, that they thought um, were interesting. Right. And then uh, probably one of the best examples of this is by a guy that I, I'm not going to try to. Say, say his name properly, but um, I call him, or we, most generally we call him Al Sufi, who was a Persian astronomer. And he, uh, he discovered this um, hook of stars up in, uh, 
uh, Volpecula that we call the coat hanger cluster. Mm-hmm. And it's not a cluster at all. It, it, it's just a chance alignment of stars that, that really looks like a coat hanger. But uh, everybody loves looking at this thing, right? Um, but there's, there's no stellar associations there. There might be like one or two pairs of stars or something. And there is an open cluster nearby. But um, it's just interesting. It's just an interesting thing to look at. But of course, with these uh, earlier astronomers, they didn't know what would be a cluster and what would be sort of historically or scientifically significant. And now, for the most part, these, these uh, non-clusters, these groupings of stars, um, don't really have that much of a scientific or perhaps no scientific uh, value, say, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, and as such, they've kind of been uh, expunged from the record. Um, but now to us visual observers who are doing this simply for the love and pleasure of looking at stuff in the nighttime sky, and that's what I like to do, I kind of feel there is some value to it. And I kind of feel like, you know, kind of some of the babies have been thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, these were things that, that different peoples from, you know, different parts of the world had, uh, had cataloged and noted over, over the years. So anyway, I just think it's kind of fun. Is, is that book free on Project Gutenberg? Do you know offhand? It is. I can't remember. Yeah. However, it's the old, it's the older edition. Um, it's, I think it's like the 59 or something edition. So, and okay. And you can uh, go in and take a look at that. However, um, one should know this is that um, the book was first published in 1859 and Webb was an amateur. He was meticulous, but there are some errors. Um, And even in the most recent edition, the sixth edition, which came out in 1962, which was edited by Margaret Mayall. And that's, that's kind of the edition that people would want to get. That edition is not on online anywhere. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, one is best served by actually sourcing one of those. Now, it seems like with all things astronomical, the prices have gone astronomical in the past year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I know that I bought my copy for less than $5, but I, I have no <laughs> idea what, what these things would be going for these days. See, seeing that book by uh, Roger Sergioli uh, and Richard Berry at, at approximately 10 times what it was a year ago is is pretty eye-opening so so anyway but yeah it is is available um but i would say try to track down a used copy you you can look at the older copy online but uh yeah there's there's some some significant changes since that one is there two volumes of that no the original one was in was in just one one book got it okay yeah and i should note this as well some of the um practices uh, especially for the solar observing do do not follow the solar observing practices in that book uh, uh <laughs> there's some extremely dangerous advice like uh you know looking you know at the sun in ways that uh that that would you know raise the hair on on your neck uh shane for sure like very dangerous and eye damaging stuff um that just wasn't known in the in the 1840s or 1850s when that was drafted up right. um we, we would not advise uh, following that, those practices for sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, I'd actually written about one of these things though, was, it was like, so I was, I was going through and I was uh, looking at something called uh, Webb's wreath, um, which is up in Hercules. And I'm like, Oh, I, that's interesting. And so I Google it. And I, 
I got an article by me. <laughs> I was oh, like, yeah. oh, somebody wrote about this. Let's see what this joker has to say. And I was like, oh, I can't believe I, it was only three years ago too. Already I had, <laughs> uh, had sort of forgotten about it, but, uh, but I, I'd written that article with Randall, my friend Randall and uh, Randall and I, I got to get him on the show sometime. He's a little bit hard to peg down. He's very busy. Um, he, uh, he and I write some articles and collaborate on, on different things together. And uh, I just got to say this off really quick. It's very strange how Randall and I came to be friends. And that is that um, we were at a large astronomy convention and happened to be in, in a science museum, like in a waiting area, waiting for a bus or something. And like I would often do, I would say, you know, start up a conversation say, Hey, like, you know, how's it going? Like, you know, who are you? And like, do you, like, do you actually observe? Cause a lot of people don't observe uh, mm-hmm. in astronomy. And, uh, and so I'm always kind of looking for people that are actually going out and, and doing the astronomy. There's nothing wrong with people that, that don't do it as, as much or have different interests in the hobby. That's, that's cool. But you know, uh, I'm always kind of looking for, for other people that, I, that actually go out and do it. And, uh, and so Randall was there and, and yeah, he said he goes out and observes. So you got to remember we're in Ontario um, and I'm wearing a, a badge that says I'm an Ontario person as well, even though I'm, I'm actually not. Um, and, uh, and so I said, Hey, where do you observe? And he said, Oh, you'll never know where this is. So we, I, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. If you have them on the show, we'll go through it. But it turned out that where he observed, he had actually married, um, uh, like his spouse was from my hometown and, and they lived just outside of town. And where he observed was less than five kilometers from my observing site. And we had very likely been observing under the same skies for years. <laughs> we were like literally just a few miles apart. And this, this was truly astounding to us that we had made some observations of some of the same things on the same nights from essentially the same spot. Um, the chances of that, of course, I always like to say are astronomical. Yeah. You guys are, we're, we're destined for each other. <laughs> Very strange. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he sent me this photo this week and I have yeah. it in here. I have his permission. He said, you, you can tweet it out. And uh, he bought a new telescope. And uh, in true style, we talk about modifying telescopes a lot. And yeah. he said, this is the best modification um, that can be made to one of these little Schmidt Cassegrain. Or actually, this is a, not a Schmidt Cassegrain. It's a Mac Sudoc. Mac, yeah, yeah. And he bought one of these uh, Orion 5-inch. I think you had one of these at, at one point as well. And yeah, uh, well, actually twice I had the Skywatcher version. <laughs> there you go. And I think they're almost identical. And mm-hmm. uh, he's, he's wrapped it in looks like uh, almost like one of those things that you put in your car windshield on a hot summer day, which we're all hoping for right now. Um, anyway, he said that these things really work well. He was surprised. So he detailed out, I'm not sure if I put it in here, but he said that uh, at minus 12 Celsius, he was able to go from inside where it was positive 20 degrees Celsius and, uh, or maybe even warmer and take it outside and observe right away. And that it, it uh, essentially eliminated most of the, of the cool down effects. And, hmm. uh, I was, I was pretty surprised about that. I kind of, I kind of would like to test this out. I have a Schmidt cat or I keep messing this up. I, like I said, all right. Uh, I have one of these max suit Mine's a little bit bigger. This makes me really want to try it, getting his ringing endorsement. He's he's the individual who sent us the uh, 
the the bit about the uh, binoculars, the uh, <laughs> the 3D printed binoculars. So anyway, but if you want, Shane, yeah, Randall said we can we can send this out. You can see he's got a dew shield there as well. And mm -hmm. I think it's uh, fairly uh, self-explanatory. Uh, you just get mm -hmm. insulated, reflective uh, material, some um, Velcro, <clears throat> maybe that's not already included on it. And then you just sort of cut it to fit and you, you take it off, I guess, when you're finished observing. Mm -hmm. um, so you, so you uh, have it on there and then you bring it in and then you take it off, I guess, so that it would uh, not condense inside of it or something like that. So anyway, mm -hmm. But Interesting. I, there, yeah. yeah, I guess the theory is that the insulating jacket keeps the cold out of the telescope, uh, sort of tricking the telescope so it doesn't have to cool down mm. outside. Because, you know, that's why I don't have a Mac anymore is I just felt like it, it couldn't keep up with the temperature decline throughout the course of the night. And you're just constantly battling, you know, tube currents and all that kind of not so fun mm -hmm. stuff. So yeah, this is very interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think you should try it. I'd be curious to see how it works with your Mac. Yeah. I won't be trying that any, any, anytime soon. I do. I need to get a better mount for that Mac. Really? Yeah. That's, that's a big telescope. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's these or five heavy. inches. Yeah. These five inches I think are, uh, around six or seven pounds. I, I, I don't know. I've never really handled one. Um, mine is twice that weight. And so it, it, I don't have a, have a proper tracking mount for it. I need to get one. So anyway, that's that bit. Um, he and I were also talking about the eyepieces uh, from Webb's Day. So kind of, mm. so there's there's some weird kind of inter um, meshing with some of our interests here. So so Randall, who I think has listened to some of the podcasts, um, he said that because he was aware that you have these Kellner eyepieces, and he said that I should I should borrow one of your Kellner eyepieces um, to try to replicate some of some of Webb's observations. Uh, once, once we're sort of able to get observing again. So anyway, I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so you've been collecting some of these uh, Kellner eyepieces. So I'm hoping you wouldn't mind. Maybe I can, I can trade you. I have some pretty interesting eyepieces here. We can, we can trade off, maybe uh, do some comparisons. That would be neat. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I have a 12 millimeter 22 or no, I think it goes 12, 20, 25. 28 and 40 is what I have for Kellners. How's the eye relief on the 12? Oh, oh, very tight. Um, yeah. Kellners have atrocious eye relief. Um, okay. That's what even I Even the like, 25, I think is a little tight to be honest. Uh, yeah. If I remember the, correctly. In that book, I, I have, it actually says that the, and th this is what I thought you would find interesting. It says that a Kellner by design will have 22% of the eye relief of the focal length. So mm -hmm. if you're, mm -hmm. uh, a, a 10 millimeter eyepiece, you'll have just like 2.2 millimeters of eye relief. So yeah. probably your, your 25 has somewhere around like maybe five or six or something like that. Well, I don't think that it, I, I, from what I remember, and it's been a little while since I've looked through particularly the, well, I, any of those uh, lower focal length Kellners, it's, it's not that bad. Um, like the, okay. uh, the 28 millimeter that I have and the 40, like mm. beautiful, yeah beautiful comfort, like no issues there. They were just okay. slightly worse than orthos and orthos are okay. not too bad at the longer focal lengths. Okay. Um, Maybe. I also have some old, uh, Zeiss, uh, uh Huygens, uh, a 16 and a 25. So, okay. You know, those would probably give you a similar experience to what Webb would have had back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. He had, uh, Huygens for, 
slightly higher power, but he actually says he was using the Kellners as his wide field, uh, oh. 50, 50 degree ish yeah. eyepiece. So yeah. Yeah. You're welcome All to right. them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can, once we kind of get into warmer weather and able to, to meet up, but I'll give you your care package and, mm. uh, yeah, should be, should be good. Should be interesting. Yes. All right. Well, with that, Shane, do you have anything else to add to this episode? No, sir. That is all for me. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.